0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome here uh, to Lord of Grace. I'm going to start a sermon series today uh, that I'm going to call The uh, the Common Good. And it's going to focus on what is our responsibility as Christians to each other, to our society, uh, to our larger community. And what is our place in that? What is our responsibility in that? I thought it would be good to take a few steps back in the midst of this season with politics uh, being so absolutely red hot and heated and polarized right now to look at some of these biblical understandings of some of these concepts like what is our social responsibility? What is our obligation as Christians to care for each other and um, what is the role? Uh, of government and things like economics. How does this all fit in from a biblical perspective? And I hope to give a little bit of background on this, not too much, but I feel like I i will give a little bit, uh, maybe a lot bit, because we often go to the Bible and we read it looking for proof to defend particular political, economic ideas that we have today and positions that we have today. And a lot of them are really not in the Bible. They didn't exist in the Bible, at least not as we know them today, not as they've sort of evolved and gotten articulated. And so it can be easy to misread the Bible. On the flip side, I think it is important to go back to the Bible and understand what does it say about things like social responsibility, individualism, economics, these kind of things. For example, uh, you go back into the Bible and just take some terms like individualism uh, versus communitarianism, Uh, Yeah, you're not going to find a lot of that in the Bible. You'll find little bits and pieces, you'll find little snippets, but not in any way we would talk about it. You definitely wouldn't find anything that we would call communism in the Bible or planned economies uh, or take another debate. Uh, the private charity versus government social programs. Should we, have a, should we take care of the poor through charity or through government programs? Well, they didn't really have government programs and they didn't have nonprofit agencies. Again, those ideas didn't really exist back then as we know them. Uh, And some of these concepts that we get real heated about, you know, you say a word like socialism, well, that's a 1800s European idea. Or you get an idea like rugged individualism and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, these kind of things. Those are also uh, American 1800s kind of ideas. That's their origin. They came about way after the scriptures in a context very, very different from where the scriptures come. So l- just give one example. Free markets. That's a common phrase that people will debate in the newspaper back and forth. Uh, you know, we, we get to business, and when we think of business and markets, we think of individuals with an individual interest going out and comparing Price and quality between different vendors of whatever widget it is we want to buy. And we may know those people or not know those people. It doesn't matter because we as individuals are purely purchasing on quality, price, whether it meets my needs. And uh, whether we know the person involved eh, doesn't make a whole lot of difference, especially if you're in a big urban area. But in the Bible... That not really how it worked. Uh, In the Bible, first of all, most businesses were not started by individuals with a vision. Most businesses, if you could call them that, were trades or careers that a person was born into and was then handed down from one generation to the next. So, Jesus was a carpenter. He learned that trade from his father, who was a carpenter. And it was through the business connections and the relationship network that his father had that Jesus was able to become a carpenter and develop a trade at that. It wasn't like Jesus could just go out and uh, go to the Votech and get a carpentry degree. It didn't work that way. You had to be taught it by someone. Herod was the king, Not because he was elected, but because his dad was the king, and his dad was the king, and his dad got the job from Julius Caesar. So none of them ever got elected. The landowners, if you were a wealthy landowner and you had a big farm, it wasn't because you were really, really good at farming, it was because you inherited that land from your father who inherited that land from his father who probably along the way combined and consolidated a bunch of different farms. But again, you couldn't just go out and buy a farm. That was really hard. It was too expensive for most people. Or even if you wanted a trade like being a silversmith, You know, say you really like working with metal. You want to be a silversmith. Well, there's a silversmith guild, and there's a network there. And the people who are current silversmiths train their kids to be silversmiths. And they do their business through the relationship networks and client networks that they have through the silversmith guild. If you want to try to break into that, good luck. They've got it locked down. And that was how you did business. You had guilds and owners and and people who had connections in town or favors or they would be related by family, so, you know, I'll cut you a deal because you're in this family or, you know, I'll cut you a deal on this pound of silver, but, you know, you'll owe me a little bit later or maybe we'll make up an alliance with a marriage and then in return, you'll get some business that way. It was all about who you knew and who you were related to and and how you were born. And you didn't just go out and buy things willy-nilly from people, not much. This was not what we would call a free market. Uh, Most businesses, again, it's about patronage and favors and connections. It wasn't socialist in the modern sense of the term, but it wasn't free. The idea of a free market, that's Adam Smith's idea. That didn't come till 1776, of all times, to write his book. There was no laissez-faire, no invisible hand. So if you go to the Bible and you ask yourself, does the Bible support capitalism or socialism? Neither one, as we understand it, existed then. So you got to step back with your question and say, more like, what does the Bible say about trade? What does the Bible say about economics in general? Uh, Or uh, take the example of politics, right? We'll have debates, big debates, about personal freedom and individual rights and liberty versus communal responsibility. And when should we give up our individual liberties for the common good? And we'll have this debate back and forth like crazy in Bible times, there wasn't much talk about that. The notion of being an individual was an alien idea. You were a member of a family and a clan and a tribe and an ethnicity, and that was how your identity was formed and how you lived your life and formed and married and how you, and what you did with your money and how you spent your money and expectations of sharing money. That was all determined by your family. You weren't really an individual. It was very communitarian, but also communitarian within the family. And if you go back and look at how the governments were structured in the Bible, it was not like anything we know today. If you go to the very beginning, they were nomadic sheepherders and farmers, and they were organized into tribes that fought amongst themselves all the time and were ruled by tribal warlords who had special spiritual powers. That was how they governed. And then after a few hundred years of that, they get King David and Solomon, and so then they're monarchies. And the monarchies last for a few hundred years, but they were absolute rule by one person. And in the time of the monarchies, you also had a priesthood that was very wealthy, but it was inherited, father to son. That was restricted by family. And you had landowners, and they inherited their land, and and you had the business guilds with their memberships. And so in the time of the monarchy, you had a very small number of people who had good jobs and money and a whole bunch of people just scraping to get by. And if you would have gone back to to the city of Jerusalem, gone back into the time of the prophets, and looked around the city of Jerusalem, you would have seen the streets filled with homeless people, with sick people, with old people who didn't have pensions, with widows and divorcees who'd been dumped by their husbands and who couldn't just go out and get a job. There were orphans all over the place. There were aliens. The Bible uses that phrase, aliens. It means either people who were immigrants into Israel or they were the indigenous Canaanites, the people who were there first. And so they were called the aliens, and they would have been out on the streets a lot because people didn't want to hire them because they're aliens. And you'd have the mentally ill. And you didn't have social programs or networks or, or, or charitable housing shelters. You would have gone to a city with, you would have had a few buildings that were big and wealthy and a whole street's just full of people scraping by. And then what happens? Then comes along the empires. The empires come from foreign countries, they knock out the cities, and they tax the Jewish people like crazy, and they take that tax money, not for social programs, but to pay for the army that takes the tax money, and for the emperor. And he does whatever he wants with it, and probably uses some on himself and some to invade more countries. Uh, And if you were in Jesus' time, When it was the Roman Empire, you would have paid a lot of tax, and Rome would have told you, see, you get aqueducts, and you get good roads, and you get streets, and uh, your roads are protected by guards. But at the same time, those are the same guards who would kill Jesus and could also uh, put themselves in your house and oppress you and persecute you. This is their world. You had no choice in your government. You had almost no choice in your job. You had very little choice over who you married. You had almost no chance to raise yourself up, even if you tried. You know, you could join the Roman army. That was often a way out, but there weren't a lot. You couldn't pull yourself up with your bootstraps. The system didn't allow that. It was a rough place. So let's get more specific here in in the scriptures. Let's look at one example. This is our passage today. It's from the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah, he's in Jerusalem. He's in the city of Jerusalem when it's a monarchy. So there's a king, and there's, it's got all the class stratifications of the monarchy, the haves and have-nots. There's corruption, there's bribes, and uh, there's uh, bad judges, people abusing the poor in all sorts of ways. and. Uh, and outside the city walls of Jerusalem is the Babylonian Empire. And they've been steamrolling kingdom after kingdom after kingdom. And they've been pillaging city after city after city. And now they're moving their way towards Jerusalem. And God comes to Jeremiah in this moment when they're under a threat of an invasion. And, he, and God says to Jeremiah that it's, I need you to go out and tell the king and tell the priests that this invading army that's coming their way is sent by me that it's my choice that i and I, when they get here i'm going to give them permission to burn the temple down sack the city and take all the rich people into slavery and that's the book of jeremiah this wrestling with this question What should we do now that there's this empire coming? And they turn to God for answers, and well, Jeremiah has an answer, but it's not what you or I would call normal military advice. You know, he says, basically, you'll never beat this army no matter how hard you try. The only way you're going to survive this is if I, the Lord God, choose to send that army back home. And I'm only going to choose to send it home if you change the way you treat the widow, the alien, and the orphan, and all the people at the bottom part of society who are struggling the most. Let's read Jeremiah. What does the words of Jeremiah 7 say? Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings. And let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt... Then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. So the prevailing wisdom of the king and the priests was that because God's temple was in Jerusalem, because they had this big, beautiful temple to the Lord right on top of the city, and, and it, it was beautiful, and it was rich, and it was stocked full of gold and riches. It would have been an amazing thing to see. And it was built to God's glory so that all the nations would see the glory of God. And the priests and the king tended to believe that as long as the temple existed, God would never allow an army to come in and destroy it because that would hurt God's honor. God wouldn't let himself be mocked. God wouldn't let his temple be desecrated. And so because of that, they figured we've got a halo of protection in our city. We can do anything we want. It doesn't matter what the prophets say. We'll just go about our business as usual because we have immunity. And Jeremiah comes along and says, no, your immunity's been revoked. You're not protected. You will be destroyed if you don't change your ways." And that was a big way, that was a a big thing to say. And why? And this is the important part. Why are the people in danger in the first place? Because they're not treating the needy well. They, quote, oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow. They shed innocent blood, which means they execute innocent people and they worship other gods. That's their list of sins. That's what makes God so mad that he's going to burn the city down. That's what you have to change in order to save yourselves. Not be more religious and not stock up your army. If you wanna save yourself, you must do what it says in the prophets, and Jeremiah's not the only one who says this. The prophets say this over and over. The same formula, the widow, the orphan, and the alien. And so when, Jesus, when Jeremiah speaks and he goes and he talks to that, that small little elite that has all the money and the power, he's telling them, that yeah, we need to make some changes to the laws, we need to make some changes to the economic policies, we need to make changes to how we do trade, we need to find some money to take care of the widow and the orphan and the alien, and we need to start looking at how can we create jobs, how can we provide housing and food and clothing and shelter uh, to them and to the immigrants and indigenous people in our midst, And God says, if you can do that, if you can change your ways and dig deep into your pockets and dig deep into your law books and you can start providing all these things, then God will send the Babylonians home and you'll have peace and prosperity forever. You can't beat these invaders, but God can. And he will if you take care of the poor. Now the measure the measure of the city which is interesting the measure of the greatness of the city in the prophet Jeremiah is how it treats the most vulnerable not the monuments it builds the temple was awesome to see i would have loved to have seen the the, the ancient temple of solomon it's one of the wonders of the world and, uh, but God says, as even as great as it is, I'm not going to protect the temple or the monuments if you don't protect the widow and the orphan and the alien. So what can one, what can one learn from Jeremiah? Uh, you know, Moran is not under uh, attack. There's no invading army sitting in Casa Grande coming this way. Uh, what are some takeaways? Well, here's, let me just give you three of them that I found. One is that God is the voice of the people who don't have a voice. God sends that prophet, and the prophets usually did have the ear of the kings. The kings didn't always listen to what the prophets said, take it seriously, but they didn't want to hurt them most of the time because they knew that could bring God's wrath. So the prophet could get an audience with the king. And so God goes to the prophet to be the voice of the people who would never normally get an audience with the king because they don't have the money and the power to buy that kind of influence. But instead, he sends a prophet to be the voice of those And the the ordinary poor, they don't have the money to buy big sacrifices to get an audience with the priests. But with Jeremiah the prophet, now the priests will have to listen. So God is the voice of those who don't have a voice, of those who can't hire a voice or bribe their way into a voice. And what else? I said this before, but God measures the righteousness, the godliness, and the holiness of a city by how it treats those at the bottom of the social ladder. He doesn't measure Jerusalem by its monuments, or its parades, or its armies, or its temple. He measures Jerusalem by the well-being of the widow, the orphan, and the alien. It's not like Egypt that built their gigantic temples and huge pyramids to honor their pharaohs while most of the population died at 35 and most kids didn't make it past five. You know, it wasn't like, God isn't like that. God measures the city, the greatness of the city by by how well it takes care of the people at the bottom. Three, God is very much about the common good. And it is a somewhat communal measure, you could say. Uh, Jeremiah isn't speaking to just one individual, and he isn't saying, you know, you, you, Bill Anderson, you need to give more to charity, or you, Bill Anderson, will get taken away by the Babylonians. He's, he speaks in a plural. In the Hebrew, when Jeremiah speaks and says you, he's speaking in the plural. He's saying, you people of Jerusalem will suffer if you don't take care of the needy. So it's worth asking the question to ourselves, doing a little bit of reflection on ourselves. Is there a way to ask uh, ourselves not how big are our monuments or our parades or how big are the normal indexes of wealth for the people at the top, You know, to not ask, say to ourselves, you know, we're a great country because Jeff Bezos made, you know, eight billion more dollars in the time it took me to give this sermon. But to ask ourselves if God, if, if, if God was sending Jeremiah and he looked around, what would he say about how we take care of the orphan, the widow, the alien, the poor, the homeless, the sick? You know, are are they taken care of by us as a society or are they left to fend from themselves? Are they protected? Do the laws protect them too? Are they able to get a fair shake in court without having millions of dollars in lawyers? Uh, Can they get a good judgment without a bribe? Do they have services when they're in need? These are God's questions for us. You know, these are the kinds of questions that are worth asking in this time that I think the prophet is challenging us to ask. is how do we, What do we do for the least? Because it's by that that God gives the blessings of the peace and the prosperity to the people. Amen.